the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We're so glad you're with us. Always happy when you join us. And so is Jeff Sennis, who's our engineer. He's happy. And Andrew Hertliska is happy because he produces the show. And I know Marianne Howard is happy (laughs) because she's our first guest. She's the co-host of the D6 podcast and. We're going to talk about her book, Rest, Overcoming Spiritual Fatigue. Marianne, welcome to Orlando. I hope things are well with you. Thank you so much for having me. So what does this title mean, Overcoming Spiritual Fatigue? What's that? Mm, Spiritual fatigue, burnout, um, it's a condition of the heart where we feel spiritually dry and emotionally empty. Well, let's start with the first topic. It's called spiritual neglect. Yes. Teach us more. Okay. So we we live in a time, and just so you know, the heart behind this book is really not because it's not written out of me knowing how to rest. It's me, it's me writing out of a place of resistance to rest. And so you're going to hear my own personal stories of how I've resisted rest. I'm a mom. Uh, my husband's a pastor. I'm a ministry leader. Uh, so there's lots and lots of things vying for my attention um, in various ways. And so I wrote this book out of my own spiritual neglect and distraction, because that's what's waging war for our true rest, the rest that comes from Jesus. And so we're living in a time where we're overworked, underrested, and overcommitted and distracted. And it's compromised our soul, that place where God's spirit is at work inside of us and our soul's connection to God. And then you move to this topic. You call it dangerous distractions. Uh, What's that mean? (laughs) Well, we now, I I was recently reading a statistic that people now lose concentration after eight seconds. So we have the attention spans of goldfish, (laughs) which I completely agree with. And um, there are distractions coming at us at all sides. And what a distraction is, it's something that directs our attention away from something else. So it's to shift our focus, and we're not all distracted by the same things. James 1.17 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So your distraction, the thing that may lure your heart away from God, looks different than what lures my heart away from God. It's not a one-size-fits-all enticement. And distraction makes intimacy with God impossible. Distraction cultivates self-centeredness. Distraction feeds on discontentment, and your distractions will rule an unprioritized heart to make you distracted and divided. Now, Marianne, Marianne Howard is our guest, uh, adapting to empty. Uh, (laughs) Explain that to us. So oftentimes when we are in leadership narratives, we adapt to an empty tank. And I talk about my own car and how oftentimes when you get in my car, I'm always pushing near E and trying to see how far I can possibly go on empty. And I use the car illustration, but there's not a car in the world that's going to run on empty. It just won't happen. It's not going to happen. And so the same is true for us spiritually. If we adapt to an empty tank, we're operating out of self-sufficiency and pride. And so I tackle 
um, different uh, concepts for how we adapt to empty and how that's arrogant and prideful and how we lead and love others. Now explain the price of our pace. What's that mean? So we cannot, so listen, Jesus walks at the speed of love and you cannot hurry and love well. And so what happens oftentimes is we operate on a crazy, crazy, busyness seems to be what's defining American culture these days and, you know, Christian culture. It's let me see how many things I can cram into my to-do list. And, but we're doing it outside of walking with the Lord. And so the price of our pace is tackling what is your pace? Why are you moving so fast? And it's a call to slow down. Ultimately, the the price of your the, the pace of your life will determine who shepherds your soul at the end of the day. And so he wants us to slow down to his pace, not always he's not always going to run to catch up with us. The price of our pace. That's an interesting wording, isn't it? Because it costs us. It is going to cost us and those around us if we choose to live um, chaotic lives. And it will, your pace will, it will destroy your peace if you are stretching yourself so thin that you can't even be present. A lot of times when we're meeting with other people and, and you know, trying to meet a need or love them, we, when we're, when our pace, when we're overstacked in our schedule, we can't be fully present because we're constantly checking our phone and looking at the next thing we have to be at. And so it costs us to live in a hurried, hurried state. I will say too, I, I recently read this passage and it's so true when it comes to the price of our pace. Careful planning puts you ahead in the long run. Hurry and scurry puts you further behind. Proverbs 21, verse 5. <laughs> very, very interesting. Uh, Marianne, invited to rest. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So what I hope to do in this book is kind of help the reader reevaluate your theology about work and rest. And so that is, that is the chapter that, that everything shifts. At the first half of the book, I'm focusing on our resistance to rest issues. But the second half of the book, from this point forward, are the restorative chapters. And so from the opening pages of the Bible, work and rest are significant. Genesis 1, God creates everything. And despite, despite his power and perfection, God rested. And it's not because he needed rest. It's that he modeled rest because he wants that to, that to be a part of our daily lives. And I think it's interesting that the first thing in all of creation that is made holy is not a person or an object, but a day. And so this establishes a pattern for work and rest. And what God wants is he wants us to work from a place of rest because he's the giver of rest instead of always walk, working to rest. And that shifts everything about the way we see life is, are you working from a place of rest because apart from him, you can do nothing? Or are you working in self-sufficiency Monday through Friday and you're working to it? Marianne Howard. In Dallas, Texas, the book Rest, Overcoming Spiritual Fatigue. Oh, and by the way, Marianne, uh, a minute ago you uh, made reference to the attention span of a goldfish. Um, (laughs) How do we know what the attention span of a goldfish is? Have you done a study on that? I, I actually have been recently looking at several different statistics about distraction. That's kind of how I built the distraction chapter. And they're saying because of the d- digital age that we lose concentration after eight seconds, mm. which is the attention span of a goldfish. And what always blows my mind is that a goldfish is swimming around in a glass tank with nothing. <laughs> and we've got all these different things vying for our attention. And so it, it's astounding to me that our attention spans are eight seconds. But but a goldfish would stare at us for uh, through the glass for, say, eight sections, and then they're gone? They're, they, they blinked and they thought about something else, <laughs> whatever a goldfish is, quote-unquote, thinking about. They're just, they've got, they're, they're, they're looking and thinking about several different things. Their eyes are fixing on different things every eight seconds. <laughs> I love it. Okay, now, Marianne, uh, developing discipline. 
disciplines for intimacy intimacy with God. Explain that to us. Tell us how to do it. Absolutely. Okay, so I spend an entire time, and it's not the common disciplines that you think, read your Bible, pray. I mean, those are all important, but I think what we've got to do, a couple things to get attentive to the presence of God, is um, we've got to, number one, we've got to slow down. Like we've talked about the price of our pace. We've got to slow down. I'm, I'm spending time with a new driver in my household, and every time I get into his car, I have to say, whoa, 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 because he has got a lead foot, and he's always ready to take off. So we've got to slow down. We've got to slow down to his pace. Scripture says, be still and know that I am God. But if you are looking at that passage in context, it's be still so that you can know that he is God. So we've got to slow down. Number two, we've got to examine our habits. We've got to develop distraction-reducing habits. We've got to minimize the chirps and the dings. And so we've got to think through what does my daily life look like and what changes do I need to make so that I can refocus on being devoted to Jesus and not distracted with everything else. Then number three, be attentive. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. I've heard it said, and it's been so powerful for my own life, what you think about, you care about, and what you care about is what you're going to chase. I want to say that again. What you think about is what you're going to care about. And what you care about is what you're going to chase. So we've got to guard our devotion. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Be attentive. Then practice listening. So we have ears to hear and savor God and his word and his presence. What's got to happen is we've got to allow God's word to consume a more significant portion of our information diet. Because, you know, scripture talks about you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so that's keeping our mind focused on him. And do we have space to listen? Are we practicing listening? And then last but not least, we've got to be intentional. And disciplines in particular, it's not a bad word. It's a great word because it helps pull the distracted parts of us back together. And so what disciplines do is it helps us starve our distractions and feed our focus. That's what disciplines do is it helps us to starve our distractions and feed our focus on Christ. And I list four disciplines that are not common, but they are so important if you are going to move to and through and from rest. And it's the discipline of silence, the discipline of solitude, the discipline of stillness, and the discipline of surrender. Those are the four I focus on. Marianne Howard is our guest, author of Rest, Overcoming Spiritual Fatigue, We have another segment with Marianne. Stay with us here. When we come back, uh, two important topics. The shepherd restores rest. And after Marianne tells us about that, uh, leading from rest. I'm Pat Williams. This is the Saturday Power Hour. And you're listening to AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Mary Ann Howard is in Dallas, Texas, co-host of the D6 podcast. We're talking about her book, Rest, Overcoming Spiritual Fatigue. Marianne, tell us about the Shepherd Restores Rest. So I spend an entire chapter walking through Psalm 23, and um, we've got to learn how to be sheep who go out to pasture. I think it's really easy for us to anchor our hearts and our minds in shepherding and leading and getting really focused on the leadership element. But we've got to remember to be a sheep. And I want to back up early on in my book. I, I talk about a scripture in Song of Solomon 1 verse that says, he made me keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And I think that's so true for us is so many times we're taking care of everybody else's figurative vineyard. Like we're making sure our kids are to church, our kids are to practice, our husband's got this, our spouse has this, whatever that looks like for you. And we're so busy taking care of everybody else's soul that we neglect our own soul. And so that's why I spend a significant amount of time walking us through the roadmap 
um, through burnout and fatigue through Psalm 23. That is the roadmap through it. And remember, the key word is through, because, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And so basically the question that I ask the reader is, what does it look like to be so content in God that you can say, I lack nothing? And so I walk you through verse by verse, Psalm 23, so that you are led out to the pasture of rest. And then the paths of righteousness become very clear. It's like, you know, I look at that Psalm 23 and it says, he makes me lie down. Well, he makes me lie down because I'm not going to lie down on my own. (laughs) And so it's a gentle, loving rebuke and command for us to rest with him because there are goodness and mercy waits for us when we walk with him to the pasture. And now, Marianne, tell us about leading from rest. Yeah, so uh, it's a focus on uh, abiding out of John 15. And, you know, we've got to take Jesus at his words. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's not apart from me, you can do some things. He declares you can do absolutely nothing. And so we've got to take him at his word. So I think number one, um, the first step to leading from a place of rest is you've got to confess your need for him. Uh, Psalm 73 says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Your heart and your flesh failing you, that is spiritual fatigue and that is burnout. But it's to the right of the but God is the hope. But God is my strength and my portion forever. And so number one, we've got to confess our need for him. We've got to declare that he is the giver of rest promised in Matthew 11. Second, we've got to cultivate those disciplines for intimacy and we've got to practice them. That's a choice. Choosing to practice disciplines is a daily choice. That's our part. We're not going to recline into rest. (laughs) I know that seems kind of like, yeah, we are. If we recline in our lazy boy, we're going to get rest. Not the rest that Jesus is talking about. We're going to get the spiritual rest, fulfilling rest, satisfying rest from Jesus when we begin to cultivate those disciplines for intimacy with Christ, the surrender and the stillness and the solitude and the silence. And then we've got to be a sheep. Like I said before, those all build. We've got to be a sheep. We've got to be willing to be led by our shepherd. And then last but not least, we've got to abide. And abiding means that we are staying at home with Christ. We are are living and leading from a place of rest. And that really does shape um, our families. That shapes our children. That shapes our neighbors. Because we're offering to the world his rest. What the rest that he gives us, because when we're leading from a place of rest, we begin to change the world. Tell me more about that word abide. Mm. To remain, to stay with. And it's, I, I use an illustration in, in my book and like in some of my teaching that I do as I travel is I use the pin drop on a map with a home And it's a heart inside of a home because you're remaining and staying. So those disciplines for intimacy of learning how to intimately move towards your relationship and your connection with Christ, when you go there, when you sit at the table with your Savior, it's like you're staying with him. You're you're connected to him. When you dive into John 15, and I I dive into it pretty heavily, um, working through that word, and it's just how to abide in the person of Jesus Christ. And letting, and I go into it's in him, not just with him. I think we're very comfortable with the with part of scripture, but when scripture calls us to abide in him, he's the vine, we're the branches. We need to know our place. He's the vine. He's the source. We're the branches. So we're remaining, staying connected to, wrapped up, intertwined, lingering with him staying with and in him. My guest, Marianne Howard, the book, Rest, Overcoming Spiritual Fatigue. Marianne, uh, what do you want listeners, readers to, to take from all this? What, what's, uh, what's the next Great step question. for them? Great question. I, I pray that these pages would spark honest, helpful, and helpful conversations about how we care for our soul by developing rhythms of rest. 
And I also just want to say, when we go to the right source for rest, because I think that's kind of the issue is we, we go to the wrong things for rest. When we go to the right source for rest, which is the person of Jesus, his rest silences anxiety. So if you're anxious, take a look at where you're going for rest. His rest silences anxiety. It diminishes autonomy. We cannot do this living on our own. We can't. We are going to fail every time if we try to do this on our own. So his rest will diminish autonomy because it declares that he is God and we are not. Number three, it destroys idolatry. Those little gods that try to climb up on our thrones, those little distractions, they're destroyed when we go to him for rest. And last but not least, his rest confirms our identity. We get very, very confident and sure and secure because we know and understand that our identity is secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What's your background, Marianne? How did you get into this work? Oh, that's such a great question. So um, I, I kind of, every time someone says, how did you get into this? I always say, I, I don't feel like I got into anything. I feel like the Lord dragged me <laughs> most of the time. Um, so my husband and I have been married 22 years, and we've been in ministry together for 22 years. And, you know, I think it's that that whole saying of, you know, this is the way walk in it. I've just been really faithful with each step and where he's placed me. And to be honest with you, I never thought in a million years I'd be writing a book, especially on this topic, because I struggle with it so hard in my personal life. Um, it's, it's not a conventional, I didn't set out to write a book. The actual, the publisher actually came to me and said, Hey, we think you have something to share. Would you be interested in doing this? (laughs) And so every single step along the way, it's, it's as though God has come to me to my door and said, this is the way walk in it. This is an opportunity that I have for you to get greater glory. So God's greater glory. Marianne, what's next for you? Uh, do you, do, is God speaking to you about another project? You know, it's it was so hard. I wrote the book in three months, really? and it was so difficult that I'm just kind of um, walking in the rest part of the book <laughs> on the other side of the work. And um, I am just trusting that, that he's going to show me the path. I have some question marks. And I have some things that God is definitely stirring in my heart for further writing, but um, I haven't gotten complete clarity on it. So I'm just kind of trusting and waiting on him to show me where to step next. So what did you learn about writing a book? What, uh, what, what hits you? Well, it's a lot harder um, now than it, you know, I, I'm, you know, middle-aged. And so writing, I learned to write in the 80s where I went to a library and learned to use the Dewey Decimal System and use books for research. Now it's the internet is, is overwhelming. <laughs> um, I am an extreme extrovert. And so when you put an extrovert in a room to stare at a wall with a computer to just write and hear from God, it's excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a painful process, but um, it definitely threw me into a more intimate, um, very, very desperate needing Jesus to move and speak uh, as I walked through it. Learned a lot. Um, the grammar rules have changed from the 80s. So um, my editor had a lot of fun making some huge edits just in my writing style and just learning how to write properly. Um, and I'll tell you, it's hard work. It's not an easy thing. It, it, it was a labor for sure. Marianne, where did you grow up, and and what were what were your, your early years like? Oh, thank you for asking that. I actually grew up in Texas, the Dallas area. I've been here all my life. That's that country twang you hear coming out of my vernacular. Mm. And actually, wasn't raised church. Um, a friend invited me to church and surrendered my heart and life to Jesus when I was 16. And uh, there were definitely some trials and challenges along the way, but I've had faithful, faithful leaders and disciple makers along the way that have just modeled uh, desperate, not perfect, but desperate. That's what I always tell people when you're looking for a mentor is you don't want to find perfect. You want to find someone who's desperate and consistent in their walk with Jesus. And so I had that and uh, married really young to a, to a ministry leader who's now an executive pastor here in the Dallas area. And so we partner and do ministry together. So that's kind of my background. 
Marianne, if I were in Dallas, I wouldn't know where to go to church. Hmm. Do I go to Tony? Wait. Do I go to Tony Evans' church? Do I go to T.D. Jake's church? Do I go to Chuck Swindoll's church? Hmm. Do I go to hmm. Do I go to Jack Ram's church? Um, I mean, I wouldn't know what hmm. to do. <laughs> and I probably, oh my goodness! And I probably missed a bunch. You uh, did there, but there are so many big ones here. But you know, I don't. I think that's you know specific to that person and uh, their needs. I will tell you this. I am a really big proponent of getting plugged into community. We host a small community group in our house on Sundays, and I'm going to tell you it's been life-giving and life-changing. And so whatever church you're going to be a part of, whatever, you know, Bible teaching church that you're going to be a part of, um, definitely, you definitely want to be a part of a church where you can get plugged into community, where you don't just slip in and slip out, but where you're going to be cared for and known and seen and held accountable and pressed into. And so I think that's, that's of high value to me is, you know, if I can come and go and not be noticed or seen, I don't know that that's the place for me because I think Jesus is really clear about, he wants us to be in church, not just at church, if that makes sense. Those words kind of interchange there. He wants us to be a part of a local faith community that um, that's going to, you know, cause you to look more like him and that you're around people that are going to sharpen you to look more like Christ. Marianne Howard has been our guest, author of Rest, Overcoming Spiritual Fatigue. We've got more. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And you're plugged into AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Folks, our guest in that first segment was Mary Ann Howard. Uh, So happy to have her with us. Uh, And, of course, you're plugged in, by the way, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're always so pleased when you tune into AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando, we continue. Jeff Kinley is with us. He's in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're going to have a great visit about this book he's written, God's Grand Finale, Wrath, Grace, and Glory in the Earth's Last Days. Jeff, welcome to Orlando. How are you? Great. Good to be with you again. Jeff, uh, tell us about this book and how it got written. What's the story here? Yeah, well, you know, most people avoid the book of Revelation for sometimes obvious reasons. There's a lot of uh, sensationalism there, a lot of confusing language and that type of thing. Uh, But basically, I take the approach that as we go through Revelation, that uh, this is God's last book he ever wrote. But the last book of the Bible, it turns out he's not just telling us about the future, he's also telling us about himself. Very important attributes and characteristics about God that he wanted uh, this generation to know. And so I explore 13 different attributes just really right out of the book of Revelation. Let's get started. Number one, what's in a name? The God who reveals. Fill us in. Yeah, well, the word revelation means to uncover or to uh, reveal. It's the, the Greek word uh, apocalypsis there. We got a word apocalypse from. Uh, but, you know, Revelation is often seen as a hidden book or a mystery book or a book of, of symbols. But uh, the very beginning of the book says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not only a revelation that comes from Christ, but it's a revelation that is a, about Christ as well. And so uh, just really begin exploring the book. What does it mean to say God is revealing himself to us? How has he done that through history? Uh, how has he done it through the scriptures? And uh, what does that mean for our lives today? Let's get on with uh, the second topic. You call it the unfamiliar Jesus, the God who is glorious. Yeah, most people are used to thinking about Christ as walking around in sandals and flowing robe and children in his lap, and doing miracles and turning water into wine, that type of thing. But the uh, the particular Christ that uh, that John encounters in Revelation chapter 1 uh, is a Christ who is glorified, he's exalted, uh, he's someone that's, that's very unfamiliar to most people that uh, in the church today or in, in the community today, because 
It talks about just how great and grand and majestic he is. Uh, it describes his head and his hair being white like wool, his feet are like bronze, eyes like a burning flame of fire. And so this is a, a really an unfamiliar Christ, and the reason why uh, is because he is exalted, he is glorious. And in fact, that vision of Jesus that John has there, uh, at, it really traumatizes John. It causes him to fall on his face like a dead man. And so I think when we encounter this risen Christ today, uh, we need to make sure we encounter the one that's described in the Bible as he is now. Let's move on. Topic three, letters to the churches. Then and now, part one, the God who reproves. I want to hear about this. Yeah, so Jesus writes these seven letters to seven actual churches there in Asia Minor, and uh, he does uh, some pretty pretty good house cleaning, if you will, uh, with these churches. He goes in and he basically tells them, hey, here's, here's what I'm going to commend you for, uh, but here's some things that are drastically wrong with your church, uh, ways that you've drifted from the truth, you've drifted from morality, uh, you no longer resemble the bride of Christ uh, that I betrothed myself to, and so Five of those seven churches received excoriating rebukes from Christ. Uh, two of them received no rebukes. But basically, I see those churches as really a picture of the church today. I mean, you have churches that have abandoned uh, doctrine. They've gone into apostasy. They've abandoned the scriptures. Uh, churches that are embracing worldly-type values uh, that are obviously unbiblical. Uh, and so Christ really addresses those churches and does some housecleaning because uh, he's about to uh, prepare them for his return. And so he wants his bride to be dressed, to be ready, to be pure, uh, and to be eagerly awaiting his return. Now, tell us about uh, part two, letters to the churches, then and now, uh, the God who reproves. You continue on here with part two. Yeah, and one of the, uh, really two of the biggest messages in that chapter there, he says to the church of Sardis to wake up. And she had fallen asleep. Uh, she, she had once had a vibrant relationship uh, with God, much like many Christians today. We, you know, we look at our past and go, man, I was so on fire for God back then. What's wrong with me? And so Jesus says to wake up. He says, return to those things uh, that you used to know and, uh, and to remember those things and to come back to me. And then the church at, uh, at uh, Laodicea that uh, Jesus describes as neither being hot nor cold, uh, but rather lukewarm. And he says, I, I can't abide lukewarm. And, of course, he was, was describing uh, the, the water there at that time uh, in Laodicea that uh, was coming down from Hierapolis, coming down from Colossae. And by the time the hot springs got there, it was lukewarm. By the time the cold springs got there, it was lukewarm. And people would just spew it out of their mouth because there was so much contamination uh, from the, uh, the, the duct system they had there. And Jesus is saying the church there at Laodicea is much like that. Uh, you're just kind of right in the middle. You're mediocre. You're lukewarm. You're lethargic. Uh, there's just nothing distinctive about you. And so Christ says, I, I spew you out of my mouth. And so, it, but the good news is, though, Pat, at the, at the ending, really, uh, ending of that passage, uh, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone in that church hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him. So there is, in each of these uh, letters to the seven churches, Christ gives each of them an opportunity to come back, to repent. And he promises a very unique reward for each of those churches that return to him. Jeff Kinley is our guest, Little Rock, Arkansas. God's grand finale. And yet, Jeff, I have to tell you, uh, oh gosh, it's uh, 50, year, 50 plus years ago. Revelation 3.20 was the key verse in me becoming a Christian when I was wow. 27 years old. That That single verse... Uh, just absolutely opened my heart. Uh, Fantastic. So, so I when you when you brought that up, I, there was a little tingle here, <laughs> a little tingle. Well, I remember it's a great memory of of the time we come to know Jesus. Now, a trip to the throne room. We're in uh, uh, part five. The God who is sovereign. We're in Revelation four now. Yeah, in fact, uh, what's about to happen to John is something that has never been revealed to anyone on planet Earth. He's about to tell him about a, a time on planet Earth where God's going to unleash his judgment. And so uh, John first, though, is invited up to heaven. In fact, Jesus says, come up here, and I'm going to show you what must take place after these things. But John says when he goes to heaven, the very first thing he notices 
Uh, it's not the angels. It's not the scenery. It's not the people, uh, but it's a throne. In fact, the word throne is mentioned some 13 times in 11 verses. And John sees the throne that is occupied. Uh, someone is on that throne. It's God himself. Uh, he sees that all in heaven is at peace, uh, that God is in charge, that he's in control. And he really encounters the sovereign God. And, and then he sees the representatives uh, of the church up there worshiping him. He sees the, the angels flying around uh, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And just really telling God how worthy he is. Uh, to be in charge. And so this chapter really is a great comfort of knowing that while there's going to be chaos on the earth, and even now, as we see all the things that are happening on our planet, we can look to heaven and we can see that same throne through the scriptures and know that God has everything under control. Heaven never dials 911. It never meets an emergency panic session. And so that's the comfort that God gives John in chapter four of Revelation. Now uh, we move to uh, topic six, the lion, the lamb, and the little book, the God who is worthy. Yeah, so John sees a, a scroll uh, in heaven. He sees a book, a scroll, and it's sealed up. And he, he looks around for someone who is, who is worthy to open the book because essentially this book unveils the history of the world going forward. And uh, John looks around. He can't find anyone who's worthy to open the book. And then the Bible says that one of the, uh, the elders says, stop weeping. The, the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, root of David, has overcome so as to open the book. And so Jesus Christ basically takes that scroll out of the Father's hands, and he begins to unveil it. He begins to open it. And the, the significance of that is that Christ uh, really is saying, I am the one who has the title deed to the earth. I'm the one who has the power to make history happen. Uh, I'm the, the sovereign one that's coming back again. And so heaven just erupts in this huge uh, worship and praise of the Lamb of God uh, because he's worthy to break the seals. And it talks about his crucifixion, how he was slain uh, and purchased uh, for, uh, for God, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it's just a great celebration of the worthiness of Christ. But, but the key there is that he is the one who is qualified and worthy uh, to take the book uh, that essentially is the rest of Revelation, and to unveil it and to unroll it. We've got time here before the break to do topic seven, planet Earth in peril, the God who is wrath. Yeah, this is the part of Revelation that most people are most familiar with. Uh, Revelation 6 through 19, 6 through 18, really talks about uh, a series of three successive judgments that God will unleash on planet Earth. Uh, known as the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And those judgments are, uh, they, they accomplish two things. They, they cause the world to suffer under uh, God's wrath, uh, which uh, the world, according to Scripture, is deserving of that wrath. And what's very interesting about that is that, uh, on the whole, men do not repent. Uh, people don't repent when God sends his judgment. So they're horrific uh, judgments at the time of incredible upheaval. In fact, Jesus said, uh, in Matthew, that there's never been a time like it on earth, and there'll never be another time like it again. And so it's a, a time of really horrible uh, judgments from God that we see the Antichrist rising during that time as well. And so it's a time where God's going to pour out his wrath on planet Earth. So I outline and go through each of those judgments and uh, unpack each of them for the reader. My guest, Jeff Kinley, we're talking about his book, God's Grand Finale. When we come back, Jeff's going to talk to us about the last great awakening, the God who is gracious. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. I'm visiting with Jeff Kinley in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're talking about his book, God's Grand Finale, <clears throat> Worth, Grace, and Glory in Earth's Last Days. And as I mentioned, Jeff, I want you to talk about the last great awakening, the God who is gracious. 
Yeah, as, as I travel across the country, Pat, people always ask me, do you believe there's going to be a final great awakening uh, on earth before the rapture, before Christ comes to rescue uh, his bride? And, and my response is, well, the Bible doesn't specifically prophesy one this uh, this side of the rapture, but it does say that during the time of tribulation where God is pouring out his judgment, that there will be an actual great awakening, one final great awakening. You see that in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, where John sees a great multitude. In fact, he says no one can count them. Uh, there's so many. Uh, he takes the, the highest Greek number at that time, and, and he just multiplies it by himself. be like us saying it's a gazillion uh, people. Uh, but people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language group, and they all come to Christ uh, during this time, uh, this great awakening. And, and I think what really contrasts this so much, Pat, is that most people think of Revelation as being a book of judgment only, and certainly it, it does contain that, but even in the midst of God pouring out his wrath, he's also offering grace, he's offering mercy. Uh, the door to the ark, if you will, is it was still open at that time, and so there will be a great awakening on the other side uh, of the rapture, I believe, during the tribulation period, and that just tells us once again uh, that God is very gracious, very kind, very merciful, and even right now uh, waiting for people to come to him. Topic number nine for you, Jeff. The king finally returns, the God who is faithful. Now, Jesus uh, had promised over and over again that he would return one day. Uh, in fact, the whole the New Testament talks about his return. Uh, as you go through the New Testament, the first coming of Christ uh, is mentioned a certain number of times, but the second coming of Christ is mentioned eight more times than the first coming. And, of course, we spend a whole month out of the year uh, talking about Christmas and you know preparing for the incarnation and the first coming of Christ, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, but the second coming of Christ is mentioned eight more times than the first coming. So obviously it's something uh, God wants us to look towards to see what's going to happen. So what happens is we're talking about the Battle of Armageddon, and, uh, and Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year uh, tribulation period, uh, Scripture tells us, and that he comes back riding on a white horse, uh, coming through the clouds, if you will, uh, scripture says that uh, the armies of heaven, clothed in white, fine linen, are coming behind him uh, in that great army. And so Christ comes back to meet his enemies uh, at the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, But the key to that is that he promised he would do it, and he's come back just as he said he would. Now, let's get to uh, topic 10. The Lord's Prayer answered the God who reigns. Yeah, most Christians don't realize that uh, every time they pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, they're praying for this thing we call the Millennial Kingdom or the thousand-year uh, reign of Christ. And when we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, uh, we're speaking about this kingdom that's mentioned uh, in chapter 20 of Revelation. And elsewhere in the Bible, we, we see uh, passages that refer to this kingdom, Pat, but, but only in Revelation 20, uh, in these uh, really in seven verses, the, the number 1,000 is mentioned six different times in that small little passage. So we know it's going to be a thousand-year uh, literal reign of Christ. Of course, Satan has tried to mimic that in the past. If you recall, you know, Adolf Hitler planned a thousand-year Reich, and so you know, to try to counterfeit or to mimic the reign of Christ. But uh, Scripture says that when Jesus comes back at his second coming, he's going to take the devil and cast him into a, a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and then he's going to reign on the earth from Jerusalem. And the scripture says we will co-reign with him. Uh, we'll be rewarded with uh, certain degrees of responsibility. So the time of finally having justice on the earth, having peace on the earth, having righteousness, and there'll be finally a government that is truly godly. Now explain to us the court of no appeals, the God who recompenses yeah, at the end of the thousand-year uh, period, uh, thousand-year reign of Christ, the Bible says Satan is going to be released for just a short time. Uh, he'll try to deceive the, the nations, those who were born during the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, that rebellion will be uh, squelched immediately. But then the scene changes, Pat. It takes us to, uh, um, if you will, a heavenly courtroom, and there's a great white throne there. And scripture says that every person uh, who did not accept Jesus Christ, believe on Jesus, from, from all eternity, from all the ages, will be brought into that courtroom, brought into that scene, 
and it says books will be open and the book of life will be open. And if their name is not found in the book of life, i.e. they didn't trust in Jesus Christ, uh, then it says that, that they will be cast into a lake of fire uh, and their torment will last forever. So this is really a sentencing uh, and, and an execution of the sentence uh, that God has upon sinners. And once again, it's a very sobering, uh, very dark in some ways a passage, but it does tell us something again about the righteousness of God and the fact that every sin that anyone has ever committed it has to be punished either in Christ on the cross or in eternity in this awful place called the lake of fire. Topic 12. There's a new world coming, the God who recreates. Yeah, this, this is really the good news for every person who knows Jesus Christ is that one day the Bible says there's going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a, a new earth. And so this earth that we have right now is not the, the final earth that we're going to be on. There's going to be a brand new heaven, a brand new earth, and the Bible says that God himself will dwell with us, will be there with him, which is really, the, I think, the textbook definition of what heaven is, just being with God there in heaven. Uh, but I love it, Patty says, there'll be no more tears from their eyes, he'll wipe away all the tears, no more death, mourning, crying, uh, pain. He says, I'm making all things new. <clears throat> and I think every person listening right now to my voice just longs for a day like that, longs for a time when... There's not going to be any of the effects of sin, no sorrow, no pain, no disappointment, uh, no orphans, uh, no divorce, no death, no cancer. It's all going to be eradicated uh, in this great new heavens and new earth where we'll be with God forever. Now I want you to explain to us the offer of a lifetime, the God who calls. Revelation 22.17. Yeah, and this is a great ending to the book of Revelation. I mean, you think about how, how does God end this whole written Revelation, the 66 books. Uh, he ends this way by, by saying, I am coming back to planet Earth. Uh, I want you to be ready, and I want you to receive my Son. I want you to come to me, come to faith in me. And really it's sort of what we might call the last call uh, that God's giving to planet Earth, saying, listen, once you've read this whole book of Revelation, uh, then my appeal to you, God says, is come to me. I want a relationship with you. I don't want you to go through the tribulation. I don't want you to go through this lake of fire. I want you to receive <clears throat> uh, forgiveness and cleansing and a new life and a new heart through Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what he says. He says, come, uh, let the, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, anyone who wants to uh, take the water of life without cost. That's a great offer. I, I call it the offer of a lifetime because you'll never get a better deal than what God is offering us. Tell me this, Jeff. What do you want people to take from this chat? I want people to know that you can understand God, you can know God, you can have a relationship with Him, and the book of Revelation is one great way uh, to accomplish that task. What is heaven going to be like in your opinion? Heaven's going to be, Scripture depicts it as the absence of all things that are bad and the presence of all things that are good. And the main thing is that we are with God, and we are recreated as well. We're given new heavenly bodies, and we'll be able to experience a level of joy and fulfillment and significance and happiness that's simply not even attainable on this planet. So if you take the greatest things that ever happened, the last-second shot in the NBA Finals and the eruption of the crowd— doesn't even come close uh, to the celebration and the joy that we'll be able to have with God in heaven. When did you really get into the book of Revelation? What triggered that for you? You know, for me, it really was a a natural follow-up. I'd written several books on Bible prophecy, uh, but I was really drawn to this book, uh, Pat, because it is God's last word. Uh, that he gives mankind. So I always say last words are lasting words. And I can remember the last words my father ever said to me. You know, people's last words are typically fairly significant. Uh, And so when I looked at uh, this last book of God in the Bible, I thought, wow, it must be something very important he wants us to know. So I just went through and just examined the whole book, and out of it came these amazing attributes of God. And so uh, oddly enough, Revelation is not just an apocalyptic book. But it's really a devotional book as well. And what do you mean by a devotional book? How, how does that work for us? Yeah, it just means that when we encounter God and who He is through His Word, 
Uh, we, we experience a sense of nearness, a sense of intimacy with him. We also gain knowledge about him, but that knowledge really motivates us to want to embrace him, want to be close to him, uh, want to know him even more, and want to live for him with our lives. Why do you think, Jeff, the book of Revelation seems so confusing and overwhelming uh, to so many Christians? I think two things. I think number one is the fact that there is a lot of um, significant language in there that may be difficult to understand. There's apocalyptic language. There are prophecies in there. John is describing the first century things that he's seeing happen thousands of years later. Uh, So in that sense, it can be a difficult book. I think secondly is because a lot of pastors have simply avoided the book themselves and not explained it to their congregations, and so therefore they think, you know, people in the congregation think, well, I guess it's above my pay grade to understand Revelation. Uh, But what I do in the book is I really bring those lofty truths uh, down to a level where everyone can see it eye to eye. I put the cookies on the bottom shelf, if you will, and just help people see it in, in their own language, in a language they can understand. My guest has been Jeff Kinley in Little Rock, Arkansas, author of God's Grand Finale, Wrath, Grace, and Glory in Earth's Last Days. Folks, we are trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. Let me close with this. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. We need to hear from you. Uh, Tell us if you like this idea. Tell us if you want to be part of this. Uh, We're working hard at it. We need your help. Okay, folks, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.